I'm going to read Isaiah 49, verses 1 to 7. Listen to me, you islands. Hear this, you distant nations. Before I was born, the Lord called me. From my mother's womb, he has spoken my name. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will display my splendor. But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent all my strength for nothing at all. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. And now the Lord says, he who formed me in the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has been my strength. He says, it is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who was despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers, kings will see you and stand up Princes will see and bow down. Because of the Lord, who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. Well, good morning. My name is Jack. I'm one of the leaders here at Christ Church. I'm going to be speaking about this passage today that Teresa has wonderfully read for us. But before I do that, let's, let's pray. Father, as we look at your servant this morning, help us to see him clearly. There are many of us today in this room and online who need to grasp the truth of this passage. So Lord, just give you permission to, to change us, help us not to leave in the same way that we arrived. Whatever baggage, whatever is happening in our life, Lord, help us this morning to hear from you and to be changed by you. Amen. Well, I wonder how many of you have seen one of these on screen how many of you have even used one of them? Um, this is a old film camera tub. Um, before digital cameras, you had a proper camera. You would take the reel at the back very carefully and put it in the tub. And then you would take your film to the local chemist to be processed. And there was a few options. You could have express mode, took four or five days. Normal mode, a little bit longer. And then my family, we called it Yorkshireman mode, which was basically you pay very little, but it comes back at some point in the far distant future. So we would pay Yorkshireman mode, because we're from Leeds. And three weeks, four weeks later, we would go and pick up our film. And you'd not just get the pictures, but you'd also get negatives. These funny little negatives, well, you'd lift them to the light. You'd try and work out what on earth they were, and it'd be a bit of a game. You're like, is that you? Is that me? I'm not quite sure. They'd be a bit shadowy. They'd be without color. Well, maybe you haven't got a clue what I'm talking about. Maybe the idea of a real camera is laughable. You are making me feel my ripe old age of 34. See them Roddy's over there laughing about it. Yes, I remember camera reels. Well, these shadowy negative images, they contained in them everything you needed to reprint a perfect picture. And that is like Isaiah. Isaiah is doing as a photo negative in this passage. So don't fear if today's Bible reading meant very little to you. I'll be honest, when I first read it, 
really, really much to me either. So you're not alone in that. But Isaiah is working on two different levels. So Isaiah has heard a word from God that, he, that God is going to raise a political saviour. Someone who is going to bring Israel out of exile. And later we find that this political saviour is a guy called Cyrus. He's king of Persia. And God will raise up Cyrus from, from basically nothing to defeat the biggest, most powerful nation on earth. It'd be the equivalent of, say, Wales taking on China or America and winning. It would just be utterly unheard of. But Isaiah is also working on another level, another figure on a distant horizon. And he's, he's more difficult for us to see. And he's the one that God will raise up to be a real saviour and to rescue his people, not just from their political problems, but from their biggest issue, which is their broken relationship with God. And this figure is called the servant. And Isaiah is going to give us four negatives, four poems throughout his um, writings, and we're working through them slowly as we go through this series in Isaiah, to tell us what the servant is like. That in turn will point us towards what the Messiah is going to be like. And Isaiah 49 that we've read this morning is the second one of these poems. And there's three things that we're going to learn about the servant from today's passage. The first, the servant deserves to be heard. The second, the servant's work of restoration. And finally, the servant that will rule. So the first one, the servant that deserves to be heard. Listen to me. That is his first words, his grand introduction. He has the audacity to call on everyone who has ever lived from all nations to listen to him. It's a bold statement, isn't it? Bold opening. Listen to me. Why does he have this boldness, this audacity? Well, Isaiah uses this term, listen to me, six times in the book of Isaiah. And every time it is used, it is a formula used as God speaks to his people. Listen up, he says. He says, I'm about to speak just as God speaks. I'm about to speak with power and penetrate your heart just like God does. Straight away in this passage, he is asserting this divine character for everyone to see. He then moves on from that divine character to his human credentials. This servant has been called and named from the womb. Called, that is, called to a divine appointment, to a special status or function. This is like a king calling someone to be his ambassador. The servant who is still in his mother's womb has been named and appointed for a task before he is even born. And the names we give people are important. You know, we take care when naming our children. My last name is Popplewell. So immediately when naming my kids, you avoid anything with too many P's in it. Poppy Popplewell, Pippa Popplewell. There are just too many P's in there, isn't there, aren't there? And the Bible, equally, puts a lot of weight on names. Names are significant. With them, they carry a purpose and a meaning. People are often renamed in the Bible once they've faced a change. So you have Jacob becomes Israel. You have uh, Simon becoming Peter. Saul becoming Paul. But this servant is named and called while still in the womb. 
Now, this servant has a special task, to do something important, a mission that was set before he was even born. All this, just in verse 1. And the emphasis here is on his message. I think we're a few slides ahead, guys. Just want to go back a couple of slides. Um, his message here is like a sharp sword. The word of God is described elsewhere as a sword. And we're meant to see that this servant is bringing a message from God, the very word of God. Arrows were the top technology of the time. Many years ago, I used to belong to an archery club. And before you fight an arrow, you would check it. You would make sure there's no mud on it. It's not dented. There's no cracks in it. You would make sure that the fletchlings are straight. You didn't want anything to deflect that arrow from where you were shooting it. The servant here describes himself as an arrow. He's free of roughness and distractedness. The servant is coming with God's message, a sword for close combat and an arrow for long distance. We're supposed to see that this servant, he is fully equipped for what lays ahead. He is properly prepared for every battle that he faces as he comes into the world to declare God's message. And who is this servant? Verse 3 tells us. Israel? This is, this is confusing, isn't it? Were we not just speaking about an, is, an individual and now are we talking about a nation? What's, what's happening here? Well, Isaiah wants us to see that he's not talking of the nation of Israel as a plurality, but a person. Let me explain a little bit. The key aspect of his mission is to restore the nation of Israel. The nation couldn't do this. They were in sin. They were in exile. So the servant cannot be the nation, but someone so closely tied to them that he can resonate with them, that he can be called Israel. The servant figure represents Israel. He stands in the place of Israel. He identifies with Israel. He will undertake the work that they were meant to do. See, God had called the nation of Israel to proclaim to the whole world about him, but they'd stuffed it up. They traded it all in for idols. They should have been a blessing to the world, and instead, they came back to God with empty hands. But this servant, he is going to step into the gap and do all that Israel were meant to do. See, he will be the prophet, and he will speak a perfect word and bring perfect fulfillment to all that God has promised. Okay, fair enough. We have a servant who is designed perfectly to declare God's message. And he speaks with the authority of God. I've recently moved house. And if... I know her. <laughs> Darling, now is not the time. I love you. Can you go find mummy again? Okay. And the show will go on. Um, I've recently moved house. And... Um, when you move house, you've got to send out a whole load of letters. <laughs> a whole load of letters to different people saying, here's my new address. And they send you loads of letters back. And on my kitchen table at the moment are a whole load of letters from people saying, here's important changes you need to make. And they're important, but that doesn't necessarily mean I'm going to open them and listen to them all really quickly. So what makes this servant situation any different? Why should we listen to him? Well, look at me at verse 4. Look with me at verse 4. I wonder if this is reminiscent of your conversations with God. It certainly is true of mine. I have laboured in vain. I have spent my strength 
for nothing at all. Humanly speaking, these words are on the verge of discouragement and despair. Yet they're on the lips of the servant. The servant who we've just been told is perfectly designed for every battle, for everything he faces. He says, I've labored in vain. All appears useless. Are there things in your life right now where this conversation just sounds so familiar? You feel like you've given it everything you've got and it all just seems, why bother, worthless. The promise of that promotion or visa application that seems within grasp, but let's be honest, it's just so far away. The couple cried, crying with struggles of infertility. The person that's just received the life-altering diagnosis. The victim of adultery. The list here is potentially endless. And I cry to God. I have spent all my strength for nothing. You're not alone. The servant has been in the exact same place. He's walked the path. He's felt the burdens that you have felt. He's been on the verge of despair just like you. The servant ought to be listened to, not just because he has the authority, but he's been where you are. He's walked in your shoes. He knows what it's like to go through exactly what you are going through. He isn't some high and mighty king that has never had suffering or difficulty in his life. No. He's walked that path. He knows what it's like to be us. He can relate to you. And so we read the second part of verse four. Yet, what is due to me is in the Lord's hand and my reward is with my God. The servant knows what it's like to be you and he still says, trust God. Lean on God in your situation. God is in charge. He will have the final say. There is nothing that you are facing that the servant cannot relate to. And there is nothing that would change his words that when faced with despair, he tells us to do as he did. To trust in God. To lean on him solely and dependently on him. When life's hard, it's really easy to just think, oh, I just need to work harder. I just need to try harder. Or when X happens, everything will be okay. Whether that is a spouse or babies or getting a certain bank balance. But we're called to trust God in the most difficult and hardest things in our life. Not just on ourselves, not on others. And the servant knows that this will look weak in the world's eyes, but, but he says our reward is with God alone. A couple of weeks ago, there was a memorial service for Anne McMahon. She was a member of our church and one of my first friends when I first came to Christ Church. And um, she was in poor health even back then. In the middle of services, you would see her crunch over facing bouts of pain. She would say to me that she's ready to be with Jesus, but he's not ready for her yet. And then she'd ask me very deeply probing questions about my love life, which only she could get away with. But when I would ask how she's doing, she would smile. She would say, I'm always talking to my heavenly father, knowing that the son too had suffered. See, she said, I can face it because he has already faced it. 
Anne would not listen to herself and let despair take hold. She looked and she followed the servant's lead. And that's what we're to do as well. Which takes us to our second point this morning. The servant who restores. Let's just pause a second and remember who and where Isaiah is speaking to. The nation of Israel is in exile. It's been pulled out of the promised land that God had provided. And they're now part of the Babylonian Empire, the most powerful nation in the world. They have no land, no access to the temple. They have nothing. And the Babylonians threaten to incorporate them into their culture. And God's people, well, they might be lost for good. They are desolate. They are discouraged. They think that God has forgotten them, if they even remember God themselves. And here Isaiah is saying in verse 5 that the servant will bring this nation back. Back to where they were meant to be. Back to the Abrahamic promises. Back to a promised land. Promised descendants and being a blessing. This would have seemed completely and utterly impossible to the people in exile. But the servant could bring back the tribes of Israel single-handedly. But the goodness we read here isn't just that Israel can go back. No, look with me again at verse 5. To bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. See, Israel's biggest issue wasn't that it was exiled miles away from home without access to the temple. No, it was that they were estranged from their God. They had a broken relationship. And why does Isaiah use Israel's old name here, Jacob? He was the one that God had said was a worm. He had been a deceiver. Jacob was the one that needed restoring before the nation was even born. So here again, this wonderful comfort. That this nation that are in exile, estranged from their God, hear these words. I'm going to bring you back. I am going to restore the relationship that you damaged because of your sin, that you could not fix. I'm going to do that for you, just like I did for Jacob. See, God has equipped the servant for a work of restoration. He's called to bring Jacob back to him. He's going to take in a broken people and restore them. Sinners restore people just like Jacob, who was a swindler, a cheater, a liar, a man who needed restoration. And this is what the servant is coming to do. It's a work of restoration. He will take the exiles and bring them home. Not a political restoration, but a spiritual one. Cyrus will bring the people back to the promised land, but the servant will do something so much better. He will bring them back to their God. A bit like the story of the prodigal son in Luke 15. The son decides he's better off without his dad. He leaves, takes his inheritance, goes off to a far and distant land, squanders his money, and ends up feeding pigs. And whilst there, he realizes, even my father's servant had better. He goes back, and even while he's a long distance away from his father, he sees his father running to him and embracing him. See, Israel is that prodigal son, and the servant is that father running around, putting his arms around him, giving him a coat, bringing him back home. And it gets better still. 
God's work, he says, isn't just limited to this nation. God has a greater task for the servant yet. It's too light a thing to bring back Israel, he says. I want you to be a light to the nations that my salvation will go out to the ends of the earth. He wants the servant to be a light to the nations, the saviour of the world. So he will come and share that light in the darkest recesses of the world. We're to grasp the wideness of this invitation, no longer open just to a few, but to everyone. See, God and the servant have gone beyond any and all obligations they'd ever made, any promises they'd previously made, because they are going to bring back everyone. The invitation is open wide. The people that previously persecuted God's people are now included if they will just accept his invitation. One of the groups that hire our church office is an addiction self-help group. And uh, over the years, I've got to know them. And some of their stories of what they've done to feed their addiction are honestly cruel and shocking. And one of them will give you a fictitious name. We'll say his name's Barry. He, he set his school on fire as a kid. That was, you know, his great start to life. And then because of his addiction, he stole, he robbed from anyone he could, especially his family. And he left behind him this trail of broken relationships. He was in and out of prison for many years. And although he's been clean now for 10 years, he struggles to get a job. He's only allowed a cash card. His CV is a trail of prisons and the world keeps him on a tight leash because of it. When we talk about God, he talks really humbly and gratefully that there is a God who would at least talk to him. But he says, I've done too much. Too much to ever get back to him. Not like I was when I was a kid. But when I invite him to church, his response, church won't have me. You don't even know half of what I've done. There's no way they would let me through their doors. See, Barry may struggle to get a job because it depends on him. But the servant and God have made an agreement between themselves that no one is outside of this invitation of salvation. Regardless of who you are, regardless of what you've done, Barry's come to a few of our services. He's still not saved, but he's heard about a God who has paid the price that he could not pay. He cannot work his way back, but God has made that offer for him. God has paid his debt, and God offers him an invite. Whatever your situation, whatever your circumstances this morning, know this, that you can come to God. The invitation is for all of us today. The servant has made a way for you to be in relationship with God. And that brings us to our third and shorter point this morning. The servant who rules. Let me read to you verse 7 again. This is what the Lord says, the Redeemer and Holy One of Israel, to him who is despised and abhorred by the nation, to the servant of rulers. Kings will see you and stand up. Princes will see you and bow down because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel who has chosen you. We read that the servant who has a servant nature is to suffer at the hands of earthly rulers and those they represent. 
A better translation here of despised and abhorred is that the servant will be repugnant. The imagery here is really, really strong. That's how rejected the servant will be. Isaiah knows that being demeaned and rejected is to be the servant's lot. Yet this is God's planned pathway for the servant to be exalted. And Isaiah doesn't tell us how this will happen. With the only explanation we get in these verses is that the Lord is faithful. Isaiah is going to tell us more in the next two chapters. He's a, a wonderful storyteller who's building up the, the tension. But for now, he just tells us that everyone will bow down, regardless of who they are, because they will see who he truly is. If you are invited to see the queen, there's a whole host of rules, but when you go in, she would be sitting, and you would stand, and you would go in and you would bow, because she's the more important person. You're the one being humbled. You're the one doing the bowing. But here, in verse 7, when the servant arrives, all the kings will be on their feet. All the monarchs will rise. They will fall on their faces and exalt the servant. When you see global leaders meet at things like the G7 summit, they meet as equals. You don't see them bowing. But here again, verse 7, there is no empire. No organization, no leader, no person, alive or dead, who will not find themselves bowed down before the servant. Isaiah foresees a great reversal when all will bow. Their rising and prostrating will show the totality of the subservience of these kings and rulers and all they represent. They represent all people from all lands, from all islands and distant nations that the servant was sent to save. So imagine hearing this 2,700 years ago. You might have been more blown away. But what we have here are the photo negatives. We have the shadowy pictures. They would say, it all sounds great, doesn't it? Can't wait for it to come. But what's the full picture? But then God says, just like us sending out a roll of film and waiting for it to come back, they had to wait for the photos to be processed, for the negatives to come back 700 years later until they read Matthew 1, 18. That'll appear on stage, on screen. Let me read it to you. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put it to the shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not, take, do not fear to take marriage your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Isaiah 7.14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Do you see? Do you see Matthew 1, the servant, who would be called and named before he was even born? And his mission? He will save their people from their sins. 
The Lord Jesus is the servant Isaiah speaks of. See, Jesus deserves to be heard. Jesus is God and he has a right for everyone to listen to him. Jesus is the one who is perfectly designed to display God's splendor and he does that by trusting in the Father. So we too are called to trust in Jesus regardless of whatever situation you are going through right now. You can trust him with whatever is on your plate because he can relate to what you are going through. Jesus restores. Jesus goes to the cross and suffers and dies for you and for me. Jesus has brought back the tribes of Israel and Jesus is the light to the nations. Jesus has paid for every sin, regardless of what you've done, if you will just accept his invitation today. Jesus rules. Jesus was the suffering servant. When everything looked impossible, when it looked like God had failed, humanly speaking, as his son lay dead in a tomb, we realized that this was God's plan all along. What looked like defeat was actually victory. The task that seemed to have defeated him is the very thing the Lord had prepared and designed him for. And now all will recognize who he is and worship him. Isaiah gives us the photo negatives, a foretaste of Jesus. But you and me, we get this wonderfully clear picture. And when we see him revealed, when we find that this passage isn't a call for you and me to go out and do more stuff, but rather to enjoy what he has done for us. Because we cannot do it ourselves. We're told to trust in him wholeheartedly. Have you trusted this wonderful, suffering servant? Have you trusted Jesus? Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. Thank you that he walks the path that we could not and still trusted you. Thank you that your servant restores. Thank you that Jesus rules. And one day, everyone from every tribe, every nation, every tongue will recognize that and bow down. Lord, for those listening and watching today who don't know you, pray that you would just give them this opportunity to, to accept that invitation, to know you. And those of us that do know you, we would take these truths to heart and be changed by them. We ask this in your precious name. Amen.